G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, the show where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Dave, welcome back to the flagship show. I know we've done a, a special show since you've been back from the UK, but this is your first one back on the flagship since December. Absolutely, thank you. It feels very comfortable and relaxing to be back in a nice, straightforward flagship show on schedule, no special extras, just just a regular good show, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got some notes in front of us, folks. I think we'll be all right. Speaking of those notes, I think the first thing we've got down is uh, we've got some listener email to go through. We have, we have. So the first one we've got is from John Hull. So hello, John. Thank you for writing into us. So John says, Hi, Rob. Hope you're well. Enjoyed the last couple of episodes. I found it interesting about that DVD lore about selling them on. Bizarre. Your reflections on old TV was good as well. You mentioned Children of the Dog Star. I loved it as a kid. I think I had the book too. Hadn't thought about it until now. Just discovered it on YouTube. It's not bad from the first episode I just watched. Still has its charm and the acting isn't as bad as I expected. I don't know Under the Mountain. Did you get Chocky? That was great. Anyway, not too long until they announce a female doctor. Smiley face. Thank you. Thank you, John. (laughs) Thank you, John. So, thank you. So there's a couple of things there, Rob, I wanted to actually pull out of John's uh, letter or email. Yes. Now, when I heard the... uh, When I heard the episode with Paul and Paul mentioned Children of the Dog Star, I got really quite excited and, well, as excited as you can get on a train from Leeds to Manchester. And... (laughs) Because that was a show that I have such vivid memories of. Now, it was made in New Zealand in 1984. only went for about six episodes. And now, Rob, if you think that maybe Doctor Who was occasionally cheap, then you take Australian budget TV, which is even cheaper. Then you take a New Zealand budget science fiction show. (laughs) This is absolutely one of the cheapest sci-fi shows you will ever see. But it is ingrained in my mind. Some of the visuals of the ship, the tension around the kids discovering it, really, really has sat with me. I don't know if it was shown once or twice in Australia, but I really remember it. I did go back a few years ago and watch it on YouTube, and it does hold up as a piece of uh, nostalgia and as an interesting piece of 80s New Zealand TV. But I've got to say, in the last episode when the aliens are revealed, oh, my Look, they clearly had no money, but yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> I I have no memory of this at all. I the the name sort of vaguely rings bells for me, and I mean, I have watched cheap New Zealand stuff. I mean, John mentions Under the Mountain, which I was raving about. That was another New Zealand series, a very short series done on the cheap, and it was great. I remember that, but I I know nothing about this. I probably watched it. I've probably watched it, but. I, I just have no memory of it. So can you explain briefly what it what it is? It sounds like it's got aliens in it or something. Essentially, an alien ship or probe crush lands out in farmland New Zealand and a small group of kids have, discover mysterious things going on which leads them to the ship and they discover the ship and sort of get into it and then they make contact with the aliens and it sort of all goes from there. Well, actually, no, that's, that's the sort of the wrap-up. The, the highlight is when they make contact with the aliens and I think the aliens take the ship back or something. I'm... You're pushing the memory there. But when this episode goes out, I will tweet around a photo or two from this so that people can see what I'm talking about. But, yeah, I was really happy to hear Paul mention that. Yeah, yeah, look, I'll, I'll have to dig it up, and I'll probably watch the first five minutes and go, oh, yeah, I saw this. But it just it just rings no bells for me at the moment. I reckon if you did see it, it'll take 30 seconds of the introductory credits for you to come back because they're really quite memorable once, once they trigger the memory. So, 
I'll be interested to hear. Now, John also asks, did you get Chalky? And the answer is absolutely yes. I can remember seeing Chalky when it was broadcast, but not only did they adapt John Wyndham's book into a six-part series starring John Hazeldine, um, and Jeremy Bullock, in fact, was in quite a few episodes of the several seasons, they then did two new seasons of their own written by Doctor Who's Anthony Reid. So they did Chalky's Children and Chalky's Challenge, which were basically sequels to John Wyndham's story with different groups of kids. And I was absolutely entranced by these as a kid, watching them again as an adult, and I've got the three series on DVD. The first one that's based on Wyndham's book stands up brilliantly. There's some really wonderful psychological thriller stuff and sci-fi stuff in there. The next two that were written more as children's series, look, they're good children's series, but they are children's series. Uh, but yeah, we absolutely got Chucky. I remember that very well from the 80s. Do you remember that one, Rob? This is another one. This is one I know I've seen, but I remember very little about. I think it's, it might be the case that I saw the series once, perhaps, when I was fairly young, and it just never sort of imprinted on me enough to remember it. Okay. No, it's another one that's well worth checking out. It's a very nice piece of... Um, now, I can't remember if it was BBC. I have a suspicion it wasn't BBC. It was ITV. But don't quote me on that, listeners. Uh, but, yeah, nice piece of British television from the mid-'80s. I'm doing some sneaky Googling, and, yes, it was ITV. I thought it might have been. I thought it might have been. Now, the final thing that Rob mentions there is a little bit of a tagline at the end. He says, not too long until they announce a female doctor. Now, this is obviously a reference to our discussion in our Capaldi leaving special a couple of weeks ago. Where, where are you now, Rob, on the idea that it might be a female doctor? In the last couple of weeks, have you cemented that view or walked away from that view? How do you think it's shaping up? I'm looking around in general, and uh, I'm pretty much the same as I was. I think people are more receptive to it now than they were when Smithy got cast. I think they were more receptive then than when Tennant got cast. So I think people are coming around to it in general. I still think there's a fair amount of resistance to it, though, from people. Personally... I don't mind either way. I kind of like seeing the Doctor be male, but I don't have any logical reason for that. <laughs> um, yeah, aside, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, aside from just, you know, the historical nature of it, and there's a, a line of guys, and then suddenly there's a woman, and then what happens after that? Do they all become women, or do we go man, woman, man, woman after that? Or do we just have one woman sort of standing out like a novelty act in the middle of all these guys? I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't mind if it does happen. That said, I think, with the loss of over a million viewers and the BBC maybe being a bit, uh, maybe the most resistant to change, uh, I don't think it'll happen this time around. I just have that gut feeling. Maybe the next time, maybe, you know, Chibnall will get things back on track and then cast a woman for his next Doctor, perhaps. Yeah, I actually agree with pretty much everything you've said there, Rob. I'm very open to it being a woman and I, I wouldn't have a problem if it wasn't, but you know, deep down in my gut for completely unreasonable and completely illogical reasons, I kind of would prefer a guy, but I'm sure that if they cast a woman, the excitement of that will carry me away. But I'm with you. In the last few weeks, I've really just got this feeling that the BBC, more than Chibnall, are just going to want to play it safe. Mm. They're going to want to try and find the next tenant. Yes. And we all know who that is. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Barnett. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we can hope. But look, that's, that's my gut instinct. But let's face it, all of this speculation, nobody knows. No, no. And in, in fact, I was, I was talking to some people on, on Facebook about this recently, and uh, I think even Paul Schoons was talking about it as well, speaking of Paul. Um, 
people have been saying, oh, this person's cast or this person is, you know, a really hot contender uh, for the role. Um, for example, Tilda Swinton has come into contention. I mean, Dave, we were saying that over two weeks ago on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, now suddenly she's the bookie's favourite. And people are saying, perhaps quite rightly, that, look, the Doctor hasn't been cast, may not be cast for a little while yet, because the show's been pushed back. And this is probably something we'll talk about a bit a bit later on when we get to talking about season 10 and 11. But I, I don't think there's any need for them to be casting a Doctor just yet. I think at the time Capaldi quit, a lot of people were thinking, oh gosh, they're going to be filming by mid-year, we need a Doctor really soon. But now they won't be filming until the end of the year, maybe January next year. No, they don't really need to cast a Doctor that soon. No, the, the one thing that makes me suspect that maybe it'll come sooner is Will they want to get the announcement out of the way as a lead into the next season? So the season we've got coming next month or the month after that, will they want to do a lead into that and then get the season out of the way without that hanging over it? Or do they let the season go ahead and then to fill the break between that and the Christmas special, do the announcement? I think it'd be more to fill that break. Yeah, okay. You know, give Capaldi a nice go at his series without people talking about some new guy. Like Sam Barnett. Um, before, <laughs> I'd say I've still got my fingers crossed for Sam. Yeah, look, you're probably right. Uh, but that said, we knew about David Tennant, I think, after episode one of the Christopher Eccleston's series. Yeah, that, that was a weird situation, though. You can't help but think True. maybe the BBC was a bit pissed that uh, Eccleston was leaving. So they thought, oh, well, we don't care if we announce this. I guess what we're saying, Rob, is we can find a logical argument and a reasonable precedent for pretty much any decision the BBC will make. We're Doctor Who fans. Of course we can. <laughs> so we're really just um, making it all up as we go. Exactly right. In the finest traditions of the Doctor Who show. That's right. Now, um, moving on to this second email. This is from Kaza. Kaza says, Hi. While I really, really enjoyed the episode, I did have one what-are-you-talking-about moment. Apparently, according to your discussion, Peter Capaldi will be the oldest to have played the Doctor by next season. Wow, Sir John Hurt was 73 when he played the role. Doesn't he count anymore because he's passed away, or are you blokes 50th anniversary deniers? Poor form, so close after his death, especially when his name is high-profile in the press from Kazza. Dave, I'll give you the first bite on this. Well, first of all, Kazza, thank you for writing in. What can I say? You're absolutely correct. Thanks for pulling us up on that. In our defence, first of all, I think I can say fairly, Rob and I fully admit the 50th anniversary did happen. Yes. We're not deniers about that. Look, I tend to be fairly conservative, and I, I count the numbered doctors as the numbered doctors, the official doctors. And even Stephen Moffat said when he introduced John Hurt as the war doctor, we're not giving him a number. So if, if you don't want to count him as a numbered one, that's okay. And that's not to knock him and that's not to knock other people who played the Doctor like, you know, Richard Herndor would be a classic example. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, it just, I, I guess what I'm saying is that when we're talking, as we do on this podcast, just, you know, off the cuff in many ways, I just was thinking of the numbered Doctors and, yeah, John Hurt didn't come into my mind. But you're absolutely right to pull us up on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about making it up as we go along, and sometimes when you're just talking, uh, you, you do just think of the numbered doctors. And uh, good point on Herndl as well. He would have been uh, as old as uh, Hurt was, maybe even older when he played the first doctor. So, yes, there have been other older doctors. Absolutely. Kazza, you're quite right. But we're glad that you're listening and enjoyed the episode and took the time to write in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what else have we got here? I've, oh, yes, I've made a little note here. Uh, errors department. I don't think I've had an errors department segment before, but I, I need to have one. This relates to the uh, Doc Whom Hootiques Roadshow episode I did where I got Doc Whom on talking about uh, 1970s giveaways like Weetabix cards and, and things like this. It's quite, quite a fun thing. Yes. And uh, he got talking about uh, futuristic paper with the corners cut off. You know, he cut the corners off a square, a rectangular piece of paper, and it makes it look futuristic. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, because they did that on Babylon 5. And I went on about this for quite a while. I had Doc convinced it was on Babylon 5 as well. But no, it wasn't. After I listened back to that episode, I thought, am I right about that? And I did some Googling, and then I realized it was Battlestar Galactica uh, that had the cut-off corners of paper. So for anyone who was misled, for anyone going out to buy Babylon 5 DVDs because you want to see paper with the corners cut off, stop. It's Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's funny you mentioned that because I actually remember reading an interview with uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who did Babylon 5, where all these fans were saying... It's set in the 2200s. Why have you got paper and all this? And he said, you know what? I reckon even in 200 years' time, paper's still going to be the easiest way to print something out, read something, scribble a note down, which I thought was an interesting um, theory from a guy writing a sci-fi series. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, on a similar tangent, when you watch the reimagined Battlestar Galactica, on the Galactica, a lot of the phones, well, all the phones actually are corded phones. And that's kind of by design that they uh, decided that, well, in this environment, that would be the, the, the most foolproof way to have communication from, you know, one deck to another. It wouldn't be wireless. It, you know, it wouldn't be something that could go down. You'd have actually a corded phone connecting you directly to someone on another deck. So that, that was quite an interesting throwback in that series, too. Oh, that makes sense. Hmm. All right. What have we got now? Oh, your appeal. You've got an appeal, Dave. Well, just an invitation to the listeners, I guess. Now, listeners, Rob and I were looking at what's coming up over the next few months, and we realised that come the middle of April, it's going to be wall-to-wall Doctor Who, wall-to-wall new series. Every website, every podcast, including us, will be looking at every episode, and there's going to be a lot of news. And we thought we've got one more regular episode of the Doctor Who show before that. So rather than going and being all intense about the new series then, let's save it for when it hits and have a really light, fun episode next time. Mm. And so a topic I want to cover in our episode in four weeks from when you hear this is what music from Doctor Who episodes do you really remember as being your favourite? Now, we're not looking at a really sort of complicated or nuanced or analytical discussion about Doctor Who music, because frankly, I wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> <laughs> we're just talking about, just send us a tweet or an email or uh, grab us on Facebook and just say, I remember this story or this couple of stories where the music really grabbed me and it really sat in the memory or it was really different or just something about that, a few little memories of Doctor Who music and let us know what we think. We'll have a bit of a discussion about that before we go full on DEFCON 1 into new series discussion in April. Yes, indeed. We'll be broadcasting every week. Every week there's a new episode we'll be talking to you about it. So, yes, we're going to have a fun one before we start uh, doing all of that. And what music made you happy or sad or what music evokes, I don't know, eating Vegemite toast in the morning while you watched old episodes before school or something? I know I had a friend who used to do that. He used to tape them and then watch them before he went off to school every day. Uh, Whatever the music evokes in you, why don't you tell us all about it? Yeah, so, yeah, get in touch with us and we'll have a discussion about that in four weeks' time. Alrighty, speaking of news about uh, the upcoming series, I think it, it is worthwhile doing a, a bit of a discussion about some of the uh, some of the things that are coming up. And the obvious one is that we have a release date now, April 15. So that'll be the first weekend we kick off our uh, weekly shows, Dave. 
Yep, that's right. So what is it, about six, seven weeks away now? Yeah, it's coming up very, very soon. Uh, other things we've learned about it, uh, Missy returns. I'm wondering whether this will be her last hurrah, given that Moffat's going and she's sort of a Moffat creation. And, you know, I, I think of perhaps the Paternoster gang being like a sort of a Matt Smith uh, thing. And as soon as Matt Smith went, they sort of disappeared. Only in Capaldi's first story did they ever return. Uh, and similarly with Missy, I wonder if this is the end for her, or maybe she'll do something with the new Doctor as a one-off, and then she's gone. You know, I, th- I, I would, I would think we're maybe at the end of her run. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that whether you love or loathe Missy, she's very much a trademark of not just the Capaldi era, but I think Stephen Moffat's era. Mm. She's one of his real cornerstone creations, and so I have no doubt he would like to give her an exit. Yeah. You know, he, he he wants to say goodbye to that character. So I have no doubt we'll see something of that nature. Yeah, especially if everything's rebooting, maybe an end that's uh, at least ambiguous enough that Chibnall could come back with a new master and it wouldn't seem, um, you know, jarring with what we'd already seen. Well, the same way that RTD gave a farewell to his version of the master that certainly left the character open for others to use it, but it was a goodbye for his interpretation of that character. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So uh, I'm thinking that could be the case for Missy. Meanwhile, the Ice Warriors are back. Uh, Mark Gatiss is in charge again. And, and rather worryingly, he said, oh, I've, I've got like an all new version. And I thought, oh, didn't we have an all new version last time with those awful little creatures running around? And suddenly Ice Warriors weren't really big guys in suits. They were just little weird creatures in pretend big guy suits. And now we've got a new version. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, this one, because... I think it's fair to say Mark Gaddis is one of those authors that very few people love his, all his work, very few people dislike all his work. A lot of fans have a few episodes they really like. I really like Robots of Sherwood and The Idiot's Lantern. Other people love The Crimson Horror. So there's all these different episodes that some people like, some people don't with Mark Gaddis. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it's Unquiet Dead and Crimson Horror, whereas Ro- Robot of Sherwood, I-, I just recoil from. But you like it, so, you know, that's cool. Yeah, that's right. So he's, he's, he's an author that seems to have very varied opinions, which is, which is great and interesting. But what interests me about this is I'm kind of glad that we're getting another Ice Warriors story because I felt that Cold War completely lacked an ending. I remember watching that one and thinking, okay, they're doing some interesting stuff with the Ice Warrior and... This is very well filmed. It's building up the tension quite nicely, and it's not a bad story. And then just as I thought, okay, we're about to hit the final act, there's another 10 or 15 minutes of climax to happen, the Ice Warrior pops up. The Doctor says, "Uh, if you press that button, bad things will happen. And the Ice Warrior says, yeah, good point. Look, my ride's here anyway. I'm off. Bye. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, I've only watched it once, but you've just reminded me of it. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what happened. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get an entire actual story with lots of Ice Warriors and actually do something with them as opposed to just build the tension. It could, it could be really good. And look, who knows what his new creation will be? It, I don't know. Maybe it'll be an Ice warrior S. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I, I saw someone mention that, you know, like the aliens in Alien had an alien queen. Maybe there's an Ice Warrior queen. So maybe along the lines of a, an Ice Warrior S, perhaps. Well, we do know the Ice Warriors are an aristocratic race so Mm. presumably there is a monarch of some sort maybe it's that yeah well they have lords and such so uh yeah let's see who the the king or queen is perhaps yeah 
All right. Uh, look, moving along, because I know we don't want to dwell too much on, on this sort of news, especially as some of this has been out for a, a little while. I do know that you have, and maybe you've been cooking this up with Rob from 42 to Doomsday as well, a bit of a Pearl Mackey conspiracy theory that might be worth going into. Well, I don't know if conspiracy theory is the right word, but... Oh, go I on, just, conspiracy I, theory. I, just, <laughs> I wonder what's going on, because a long time ago, possibly in a galaxy far, far away, I'm not sure... Mm-hmm. Pearl Mackey was announced as the new companion. Now, it feels like it was a decade ago, but it certainly was quite a while ago. Yeah, it feels like a like a two years or something, but it, it I does. know it's not. <laughs> Since then, we've had almost nothing of her. We haven't really had any... Well, I mean, she hasn't appeared in anything on screen yet. We've had her in the trailer, which I made the point last time I just thought was so horribly cut. And mm. then they've introduced... Matt Lucas as Nardle, and he's had a lot of attention, and he's been in little funny uh, YouTube videos with Peter Capaldi, and they put him on the front cover of DWM, and a lot of Doctor Who fan sites have got the Doctor on Nardle, and nobody's talking about Pearl Mackey. And I just wonder, if I was Pearl Mackey, and I'd been cast as the big co-star of one of the BBC's flagship shows, and then nobody mentioned me again for a year... I'll be wondering what's going on. Am I, am I alone in this, or am I being am I, am I, am I jumping at my own shadow? Ah, well, look, when you and Rob from Forty Two to Doomsday were talking about this on Twitter, I, I tried to be the uh, the devil's advocate, I guess, position. And, you did, you did. You know, I, I pointed out that yes, you know, the the new Doctor Who magazine cover does have Capaldi and um, Matt Lucas on the cover, and and Pearl's nowhere to be seen. However, since issue five hundred, we've had eight issues, eight further issues. Um, Capaldi has only been on two of those eight issues himself, and in one of them he's with Mackie, and in one of them he's with Matt Lucas. So I guess you could say Peter Capaldi hasn't been having such a good run on the cover of Doctor Who magazine lately himself. Ah, oh, gosh, it's it's really hard to say, isn't it? I guess there are two things. One is she hasn't quite worked out. That's why they've slipped in Matt Lucas, and suddenly from being in, oh, he's in a few episodes to he's he's in most of the episodes. Is that why or is she doing something so amazing that they want to really keep their powder dry and just play it under the radar and then maybe knowing that she might only have this series to impress just waiting till that first episode and just boom surprising everybody look both of those are are possible and i don't claim to have any insight into that but i do contrast it with every other companion we've had and this is going right back oh past john nathan turner's time when you had the new in inverted commas who girl Mm. They would, always, they would be the focus of the build-up for the new season, especially if there isn't a new Doctor. There'll be all of this, hey, you know, we've got a new companion, it's a new actress, let's get to know her, let's have a look at her, and build the excitement around her. And it's just felt a bit absent, particularly when they went to all the trouble of giving her the big announcement so long ago. Maybe they're waiting for her debut and it'll all take off then. But, I mean, what have we got, one more episode, one more edition of DWM before the series starts? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I would have thought they'd be building her by now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the break hasn't really helped with the way we've sort of built up to the new series. No. But but there is, yes, there is something to be said for the fact that she hasn't been quite as pumped up as, as past companions have been. And is there a reason why? Or is it just an oversight? Who knows? Yeah, or are we just looking and seeing conspiracies? Are we just looking at crop circles, Rob? Maybe. Now, speaking of Doctor Who Series 11... Yes. We've had some news about that as well, haven't we? 
We certainly have, and I, I guess I've already sort of uh, burst that balloon earlier by talking a bit about it, and that is that it won't record like Series 10, and, and we won't see Series 11 pop out in April of 2018. Uh, it's not going to start filming until late this year, maybe early next year, and then pop out towards the end of 2018. So after this year or half a year off to sort of reset the clocks and get us back to April when Doctor Who does really well in the ratings and everything's you butte we're going to go back to having Doctor Who in the depths of winter, at least in the UK. Yeah, I, I've i got to be honest here. Whilst I can understand the technical and logical arguments for why this series was delayed and then why the next series is delayed, the reality is we're going to have very little Doctor Who in a very long span of time. Yeah, yeah, and it's very true. This this has to be to the show's detriment because I was thinking about this over the last week as I was preparing my notes for this this show and when I think about all the US shows that I watch, whether they're 13 episodes or, okay, in fairness to them, a lot of them are 22 to 26, but the way they break them up, the way they put the mid-series gaps in there or they have other gaps in there and the way they do the publicity, with these series there's always this feeling that you're never far away from the next episode even if it's a three-month break or a six-month break, or even in some cases a nine-month break, you always feel as though it's coming back at a certain time and there's a certainty about it, and you just, as I say, never feel that far away from an episode. Whereas with Doctor Who, I really have felt that Doctor Who's a long way away and then next year it's going to be even further away, and mm. that allows people to fall out of the habit and to sort of move on and... Forget about it. I get why they're doing it, and I don't know if I agree with their reasoning, but I just think it's really, you know, it's got to hurt the show. Yeah, well, the reason given, uh, if people haven't heard it, is that Chris Chibnall has been filming Broadchurch. I think they've, they've wrapped that up now, but he's going to have a little break, then get things on track for who. So that that's what the delay is all about. Otherwise, they would have been filming by about, I don't know, July or, or so. You know, it was relatively quick coming up. And look, maybe Chris Chibnall's going to be the most wonderful, brilliant person to do the show. I don't know what Chris Chibnall's going to come with. But I struggle to believe that in the entire British television industry, he is the only one with the wit and the talent to make Doctor Who. So if the BBC wanted to make Doctor Who like clockwork, same time every year, with regularity, they could hire someone potentially just as good as Chris Chibnall who could do it when they want to do it. Yeah, and, and and maybe if it was me, and look, I'm not a pro- professional in television, I don't know, but my gut instinct, if it was me, I would want the regularity more than I would want a particular choice. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I agree. You know, even someone coming in and doing it for just a year or two, you know, uh, these showrunner deals don't have to be someone who just stays and stays and stays and then is so worn out when they're asked, you know, will you ever write again for the show? They say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I yeah, thought they right. come in for a year or two and do something fresh and then nick off, you know, and then maybe come back and write some more. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So I look, the BBC's made a decision. They've given reasonable explanations, but it can't help the show to have these huge breaks, particularly, you know, a long break, a small season, and another long break so close. It's it's a shame, but hopefully it'll all work out. Yeah, I know. And and I know it confuses the American viewers as well, because they are used to the American schedules and thinking of the American shows I watch. I think the only time I've really noticed a, a big shake-up in that sort of thing with ongoing series was uh, the writer's strike, when that kind of just bollocks things up for several months and just threw everything out of whack and went a bit crazy for a year or so. 
other than that, they're, they're like clockwork and they're churning out twice as many episodes as Doctor Who every year. Yeah, that's a really good example because I know there were a number of shows that were so disrupted by the writer's strike, they never really found their rhythm again with their truncated seasons and all that sort of thing. It, it did knock quite a, couple, a few shows off, off balance. Yeah, well, Battlestar Galactica, which I was talking about earlier, that, that got messed around and had to break a season in two and it, it kind of sort of... It didn't go off the rails, but it sort of lost its rhythm a bit, for sure. Yeah, the same with The Office. It really lost its rhythm for a while there, just truncating episodes and seasons and everything, yeah. Mm, yeah, anyway, shall we move on to some uh, some general Doctor Who news? I think we better. All righty. I, I guess the big thing, of course, to mention, not just because of Kaz's email, but in general, is, of course, we had the passing of John Hurt, which we would certainly like to talk about, even though it, it is a, a little bit in the past now, but certainly a huge event for not just Doctor Who, but movies and, and TV in general. Yeah, it really is quite sad news. I went and saw the movie Jackie in the first few days of this year before I went away, and John Hurt plays a medium-sized part in that. And I remember looking at his performance there and thinking, the performance is great, but you do not look look like a well man. And I just had this premonition looking at him that it was coming to the end, and then about 10 days later I saw the BBC News alert, and sure enough it had come to the end, and... I don't normally get worked up over actors that have passed away, you know, and celebrities, but this is this, this is very much for me like Alan Rickman. You know, when Alan Rickman passed away, you thought of all these wonderful roles that you loved that he'd been in. It's the same with John Hurt. Just The list just keeps going. I, Claudius, The Naked Civil Servant, Viva Vendetta, Alien, The Alan Clark Diaries, just performance after performance after performance that is you know, Brunner, the elephant man, you know, you can just keep going. Mm. He's had such a seminal part in our lives. And this is one that I think actually does deserve a bit of, you know, a bit of eulogizing. How, how do you feel? Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, just on the, the way he, he looked towards the end. I mean, he, he did some big Finnish audios, obviously some Doctor Who stuff, but he's also done the invisible man, for example. And like big Finnish do, they take sort of contemporary pictures of their actors and then dress them up for the covers and stuff. And I thought he looked very ill on the cover of The Invisible Man. And, and of course, we, we knew he was suffering with the cancer. So it yeah, was, yeah, it was we did. no surprise that things weren't maybe going so well for him. Um, but, yeah, look, he, he'd be in everything from, from real genre stuff, like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. You know, he's, he's yeah, in that. Yeah. But, yes, he's also in The Elephant Man. He's also in I Claudius. And then he's also in some really, really low-budget stuff that's nothing like big blockbuster popcorn movies and it, it seemed that he just did whatever took his fancy because well when you're john hurt i guess you can do that and what a career fantastic yeah really really deep batting in terms of the what stuff he's done as you say and he clearly enjoyed it and yeah lots and lots of fond memories of, of this guy you know not to mention of course that he was in the 50th anniversary special of doctor who and i think for some of us he was the best part of it yeah Yes, well, I mean, there there are people who, who still don't want to admit that he exists, and it is strange that Moffat had to write him in at the last minute because of this happening and that happening with Eggleston, and, you know, it's, it's all still a bit up in the air with a lot of fans, but what he actually did... I think was quite good. Although I often joke that, you know, he's meant to be this guy who can't call himself the Doctor because he's so horrible, apparently, but he's really just a twinkly old guy. He's <laughs> quite likeable, really. Yeah, that, that didn't quite work, did it? But I, I remember vividly sitting in the cinema down here in Melbourne and the moment when the Smith Doctor and the Tenant Doctor both did their 
their stupid catchphrases, and he's just looked at, almost looked at the audience, and just gone, "Oh, for God's sake!" Yeah. And I just, I punched the air at that point. It was a wonderful <laughs> moment, and I'm going to remember him like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or, or at the end of that episode where you first heard the voice, he thought, "Who's that talking?" And then he turns around, and then we had the Tarantino-esque, you know, starring John Hurt as the Doctor. <laughs> it was like, yeah. "What? Oh my That's God!" Right. Yes. Fantastic. All right, moving on. Uh, we recently had a big finish sale. Uh, I don't normally talk about sales of merchandise, particularly when they're finished and our listeners can't take advantage of them. But this was a very specific one because it was a, a sale of uh, CDs numbered 51 through 125 in the big finish catalogue. And it reminded me of a sale they did some years back of uh, CDs 1 through 50, which then meant that afterwards they started to phase out and have never repressed CDs 1 through 50. So I think Big Finish is now phasing out CDs 50 through 51 through 125. Um, I must admit, I bought a lot of them. I bought 17 <laughs> from this oh, wow. Well, look, they, they came out to be less than $10 Australian each, um, which is like basically half price um, for oh, what we normally almost, pay. Almost a third price for yeah, a CD. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of the McGann audios. McGann is really the doctor I've collected the most through Big Finish uh, because I've looked at the range over the years and thought, there's so much of everything. What do I get? Oh, my God. You know what? I'll, I'll get the doctor I've got the least of in terms of books or DVDs or whatever. I'll get McGann. And uh, so, yeah, I've now got all the McGann stories right through to where he starts those uh, runs with, uh, I think, Sheridan Smith as the companion. Um, I don't have those yet, but the first, I don't know, 20, 30, oh yeah, at least 20, because I bought 17 this time around, maybe the first 30 McGann audios I, I now have, or will have when they come in the mail, which is really exciting. So is that what prompts you to buy a big Finnish title? Is it very much about the Doctor? It would be, yeah, absolutely. Uh, more so than the writer, uh, possibly Enemy might sway me as well, like if it's a Cyberman story, I might buy it thinking... Can someone do a good Cyberman story? <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it's the Doctor. And because McGann is so underrepresented elsewhere in my collection, it just fascinated me back in the early days. Oh, my God, McGann is doing audio. That was like the Holy Grail. You know, because I remember in the early days, McGann wasn't even into doing fan events and things like that. I mean, it's completely different now. He goes to every fan event and poses for photos mm, and all mm. that stuff. But in, in the early days, just after that, the failed TV movie, he didn't do conventions and stuff. He thought conventions were a bit weird. In fact, I think I've got a big finished DVD here, which is an interview with him, where he talks about not being so into it. I, I might have to dig that out. Yeah, fair enough. I, I find it interesting you say that because when it comes to big finish, I very rarely buy their absolute original type stuff. I think partly I'm just not that interested. Partly, there's, as you say, there's so much of it, you're just scared to dip in in some ways. But... What I have bought over the years have been some of the special runs based on a particular aspect. So I've bought, for example, the stories of the original season 23, like Nightmare Fair, Mission to Magnus. I've bought the Andrew Cartmell Imagine season 27, you know, what he was going to do with that. And I've bought the adaptions of the new adventures, or sorry, yes, the new adventures, the missing adventures, the virgin books. So I've tended to buy something where there's still a, a tangible link back to the original series and I can then see with interest what they've done with it rather than a brand new um, original one. And partly because I get burnt occasionally. I, I remember once thinking, oh, they're doing a prequel to Death to the Dice with the Ex Excellence. That could be really cool. And, oh, my God, it was the worst 45 minutes I've ever listened to anything. Oh, really? <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> um, so, you know, when, when you do have to spend 
a certain amount of money to to get them. It's yeah, you, you, I'm a, bit, a little bit wary. And as I say, but the, the, the collections I've bought, I've really enjoyed those those targeted ones. I have to say that. Yeah, look, I, they do actually interest me. It's just that because there are so many and they are normally so expensive, I just haven't gone in that direction. But yeah, it, it has been McGann for me so far. I've got, I've got to say, and and I've enjoyed most of the ones he's done as well. I think he's he's quite good on audio. And of course, McGann is such an open book. You know, we don't really know what his doctor did. Are the EDAs canon? Probably not. Are the Big Finish canon? Probably not. Whereas someone like Davison, they say, oh, here's a Davison story with perry here's another davison with perry and i'm thinking no no in my head he goes straight from planet of fire to case vangersani there is no in between you know yeah and i've always been intrigued i have to say this idea that we can have all of these adventures around a guy who played the doctor he was on screen for about 60 minutes the first 20 of them he was wandering around in a bed sheet <laughs> the last 20 he was strapped up in some weird device going grace <laughs> And it's only about 20 minutes of him actually being the doctor on screen. And from that, they've extrapolated hundreds of stories. Mm. That's, it's I don't know whether to be amazed, impressed, or slightly terrified. I think it is, though, because he is such an open book. They can do anything. And I yeah. think, you know, credit to him, I think he's really developed the character. So much so that the character that pops out in, in um, Night of the Doctor is really kind of based on his big finish persona, which he's yeah. kind of, you know, crafted over the years. So, you know, I, th I think he's got something to do with it as well. And the more of it that he's done, because let's not forget, he's done this for a decade or more now, maybe longer. Um, they've had plenty of chance, the writers, to listen to him and then start to write based on what they hear. And, you know, it's, uh, it's coming along well, I think. Fair enough. Now, something else has been released in the last couple of weeks, Rob. Yes. And our copies have each arrived in Australia, and I'm looking at one right now. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's the Loving to Hate book. Yes, yes, J.R. Southall's Hating to Love. Hating to Love, sorry. <laughs> no, <that's laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm even looking at the cover and I got it wrong. <laughs> yes, uh, you may have heard me talk to J.R. about this on a very, very early episode of the Doctor Who show, and I pulled out the audio recently for a special sort of thing I dropped on the feed. This has been a bit of a passion project of JR's for a while. Basically, he got together with some uh, some people he knows, uh, John Arnold, Brendan Jones, Christopher Bryant, Jim Hall, and a cast of others, and uh, said, look, guys, write me some essays on some unpopular or perceived unpopular Doctor Who stories. Yeah, and I've been dipping into this, and, and let me say, these uh, watching books books are the sort of things you, I don't think you do read from cover to cover. You you dip into them and you pick the one you feel like reading and you have a look. And there's some very interesting stuff in here. It's The best part about it is that it's contentious. Yes. There are some essays that you read and you go, I agree with every word of this. But there's a lot you sit there and go, I don't agree with any of this, but I'm interested in what they're saying and I'm curious to understand why they're saying it. Yeah, absolutely. These are really well-written essays, as you say, whether you agree with the uh, the premise of them or not. And I've I've got to say, I've been dipping in. I, I went to some Davison essays first. So I went and looked at Terminus by Beth Ward, for example. But uh, there are there are essays across all the Doctors. And uh, although the cover says reassessing the fifty-two worst stories of all time, I make out there's about sixty essays in here. <laughs> There are a couple of the ones that I've dipped into, for example, have been ones about stories that I'm surprised are in there. So it's interesting to see J.R. write an essay about the enemy of the world because I thought that was sort of had iconic status now. You weren't allowed to talk about it. 
Um, but I have to say, I'm looking forward to reading Matt Barber's Time Lash essay because I've spoken in person with him about it. I know the pain it caused him to write it. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the finished result there. The book only arrived a couple of days ago, so a lot to dip in there. But there's a few more of these books coming out. I know that, Rob, you've made a submission to at least one of the one future titles. Yes. Um, back in the olden days, JR did a series called You and Who, uh, which was essays about fans talking about their relationship with the show, and then uh, You and Who Else, which was fans talking about their relationship with particular episodes. Um, now there's a whole bunch of You and Who, or You and Whatever books coming out. One of them is uh, You and Target. Is that the name of it? I think it is. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. You and Target, which is uh, fans' relationships with Target novels. And I've submitted a piece on the uh, Five Doctors to that book, so... Hmm. Yes, I submitted one on Power of the Daleks. Interesting. When you tell people about it, do they do they say really obvious things? Like with me, I say, oh, I've written about the Five Doctors, and people say, oh, are you writing about how it was in the shops before it was on television? <laughs> and I'm like, no, because I don't live in the UK. <laughs> uh, no, people just look at me, and you see them churning over and going, oh, yeah, that was novelised, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think that'll be a, a, a fun one. They've got a, a, a David Bowie one coming out, a fan's relationship with Bowie in different ways. Um, there's a Sarah Jane one coming out, or a Liz Layton yes. one, I should I've, say. I've, I've submitted an essay for that one, and I've submitted an essay for the Douglas Adams one. Interesting, interesting. Because with particular regard to the Liz Sladen slash Sarah Jane one, I couldn't come up with something. I would really like to write an essay for it, um, this is almost like a therapy session now, isn't it? I, I'd really like to do it, and I can't do it. I, I've seen all her episodes. I think she's great. Um, I just don't have anything to say. Like, of, of note, like I could write something, I'm sure, but I, nothing just really jumped out at me. I mean, w without telling me specifically what you've done, because don't want to spoil it for listeners, how did you come across an idea for the Liz Sladen one? Was it a story or, or something? Well, I cheated a little bit because, well, not cheated because the book allows it, but I didn't pick a televised story. I wrote about the two audios that she did in the 90s. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that was a way for me to plug into where Doctor Who was for me at that particular point in my life and her role within that. Interesting. That's a good one. That is very good. But if people do want to submit essays, I know that most of these books are still taking submissions, so um, we could probably put a link on our Facebook page or something and... I know they're, they're keen for some more issues, particularly for the Sarah Jane book. So if you want to see your name in print writing about Doctor Who, I think you should have a look because, well, let's face it, we have. Yeah, yeah. Look, the, these are fantastic. JR does a great job editing them. He's not editing all of the books we just mentioned, for example. He, he has got some new editors on board who are t sharing the, uh, the load now, so to speak. But uh, I think he does keep an eye on everything and the quality is always really high. And uh, you're in uh, good company if you're in one of these books, that's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Now, look, we've just been speaking about JR. Um, Dave, you were recently in the UK. When you came back and we recorded the 21 Replacements for Capaldi special episode, we said, look, we'll talk about this more when we do our next flagship show. So here we are. We've, we've had a little lead in talking about JR. Um, what was it like being over in the UK and meeting uh, the Blue Box podcast boys and JR, of course, and also the Diddly Dumb guys as well? It was, it was really a wonderful experience. Now, I've long had this theory that these days, podcasts are to Doctor Who fandom what 
fan clubs used to be. Although there's still a place for fan clubs these days, I think a lot of the real community involvement and the many ways the sort of social aspect is actually been taken up by podcasts. Mm. And just like fan clubs used to have your committee that would run the show and then there'll be those who might help with the panels and then there'll be those that would just enjoy what the club presented, podcasts have got people like us that actually host them and make them and then they've got contributors who send us tweets and emails and have a involvement that way and people who just enjoy listening to what we produce at least i assume they do they keep downloading it <laughs> exactly exactly and then people who come along and say look can i submit something to the tardis library for example and next thing we've got a new you know submission yeah that's right so it, it seemed to me a fairly logical thing that if back 20 years ago if you were an australian who was active in fandom going across to the UK, you'd send out, you'd seek out a local fan club and try and get involved. And I thought, well, we have all these interactions via social media and email and guests on each other's podcasts with these guys over in the UK. Why wouldn't I do the same thing? Mm. So I, I reached out. They were very you know, lovely and very accommodating and happy to meet me. So first of all, when I was in London, I went to the Fitzroy Tavern with the crew from, well, three of the four of the crew from the Diddly Dum podcast. Now, one of the most wonderful parts of that was I got out of the tube station. I sort of followed my map on my phone to where we were going to be. I turned into the street where the pub was, looked up, and there was the post office tower. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> like the opening shot of the war machines. Yeah. So I thought that's very well done. So uh, when we got there, I was able to meet Doc Hume and Hayden and um, Mark, and it was just a really pleasant conversation. It was just lovely to chat about things, and some of it was a really technical chat, you know, how do you make your podcast, and what do we do, and how does it compare, and some of it was a bit gossipy, and but a lot of it was just chatting about, you know, Doctor Who and television and the world, and just meeting these people who we've been listening to in our homes and our cars for years, and suddenly you're chatting to them. And, and I must say, it is weird sometimes hearing those voices come out of a real person. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, did it make you feel like you knew them, like you sometimes feel about, you know, people who you listen to for a long time, then you meet and you're like, oh, it's like I've known you for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. It was exactly like that. So really good chat there with the Diddly Dumb Boys. And I was very pleased that uh, a couple of the jokes that we just came up with over a drink and over lunch ended up in their next show so uh <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was it was good to have been there at the creation of some of those gags yeah we will uh, expect a royalty check guys <laughs> so that was lovely and then equally lovely i caught the train down to exeter a couple of issues with that but i won't go into the british rail <laughs> uh, but i got there and i was hosted by jr from the blue box podcast and Again, had a chat to him, and it was great to meet him and some of his family. And then we all went across to Matt Barber's place, and they invited me to record an episode of their podcast. So it was good to meet Mark and Lee, as as well as Matt and JR. And, yeah, we had a bit of a chat, and again, some of the similar questions. You know, how do you record your podcast, and what do you do different, and talking about the show. But, yeah, I got a chance to actually sit around their microphone and record an episode of the Blue Box podcast. So that was really interesting. And yeah, thanks to the guys for being so accommodating. And that episode is out now. So if you've ever listened to the Blue Box podcast, have a look at their feed. One of the, the most recent episodes will have Dave on it. And uh, of course, if you haven't listened to the Diddly Dumb podcast either, um, look them up as well. That's always a good time. Yeah, and it was it was great because 
you know, there was one member of the podcast who took me aside and said, I just want to warn you, one of the others can be very domineering. So you know, don't don't feel afraid about taking him on. And five minutes later, that person left the room and the other person came along and said, just to let you know, that guy, he can be very domineering. So, you know, don't be afraid to take him on. So. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. I hope they don't mind me sharing that. Well, we... We've all heard the podcast. We know who's domineering and who's not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they were they were really they were really accommodating and letting me do that. And so yeah, it was great to experience that and to see their part of the world. Yeah. Oh no, that's really good. And and hello to the Diddly Dumb Boys and the Blue Box Boys. I know uh, at least some of you from each show listen to us, which is really really nice. Um, you mentioned seeing some Doctor Who locations, or at least the uh, the Post Office Tower while you're in London. But being in the UK, surely you went past some other locations where Doctor Who has been filmed. It's been filmed in so many places over the last 50-odd years. Yeah, absolutely. I went down to Leeds Castle, which, of course, was where Castle Gracht was uh, filmed for the Androids of Tara. And, I, yes, I had checked out the Androids of Tara and looked for all the, the shots, and I found them all. That's a wonderful castle to visit. Um, I also happened to go past the Cutty Sark and everything, and I thought, I've seen this before. That's right. It was in Dimensions in Time. <laughs> Maybe not an episode I was thinking of. No, but it's it's good to sort of see that. But again, you just wander through London and suddenly there's Westminster Bridge from the Dalek invasion of Earth. There's the St. Paul's Cathedral where the steps used to be from the invasion. There are all the stations that are mentioned in the Web of Fear. You know, all of these little things. Um, you know, there's that shot of the old docks from Resurrection of the Daleks. You know, all these little things that trigger memories of the show. And I don't know if the UK fans appreciate just how close it is and how much they've got mm. yeah it, it's it's hard to say sometimes i mean speaking of the blue box podcast and matt barber i know he'll often talk about going down to uh Aldborn and just being blown away because it's like stepping into the, the set of the demons um and so i know he would particularly appreciate that location for example but on the whole yeah yeah you do wonder sometimes like i remember when i was in the uk in 91 Stuff like the uh, the docks was still in the process of being renovated, um, as I recall. And I, I could think, gosh, that, that's like Resurrection of the Daleks. That's amazing, you know, and, and do they appreciate it? Because I know when I walk around Sydney, I maybe don't appreciate things as much as a tourist does, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that's the wonderful part of walking around London. And it's not just Doctor Who. There's other TV shows that you recognise shots from or stations from and yeah it's lovely to do and I've, I've done a lot more doctor who sites on previous trips this one was much more family focused but no it was really great to meet up with those other podcast guys hopefully one day they'll be out to australia that would be awesome <laughs> although it might be hard for us to uh, to host them because you're in melbourne and i'm in sydney that'd have to be in one place or the other we can do a canberra trip and all meet in the one spot that would that would be very good actually yeah okay cool deal um Coming home, I know you read something particular on the plane that you might like to uh, to mention. It's something that I've read myself, but you've read an updated version of it. That's right. It's a copy of what is now called Totally Tasteless, The Life of John Nathan Turner, originally published, written by Richard Marsden as The Life and Scandalous Times of John Nathan Turner. But it's been released now in a hardback format with a wonderful cover by Andrew Skeletor, who... Long-term Doctor Who fans will be very familiar with his work on Target novel covers and VHS covers. But I picked this up. Look, I was umming and knowing whether to pick it up as a second copy because I really love this book. It's a mm. wonderful book. It's insightful. It's honest. It told me so much about television at the time and Doctor Who at the time. 
But the thing that really got me over the edge is there's some extra material that Richard's written, and it takes from being about a 300-page book to just under a 400-page book. Oh, wow. And this is basically the story from him conceiving the book right through to it finally being published. He talks about how he was getting it published, and it took until the third publisher to actually finally hit the print button on this thing. It was that controversial. Mm. He talks about the process of interviewing people and how different people reacted to that process and what they said. And he, he talks about some people who, after being interviewed, sort of got cold feet and started to get quite narky about it. And then, obviously, as he was writing this, the whole Jimmy Savile thing broke. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so he talks about how that affected the not so much the writing process, but the creating process and then the release process and how it affected the publicity. And I've got to say, the way that some of the more official parts of the Doctor Who industry reacted to that, they don't come off too well, in my opinion, I've got to say. But I encourage people to have a read of this because apart from being a wonderful book, and I've now read it for a third time, mm-hmm. the new material is you know, really quite insightful and um I must admit, actually, we're talking about Doctor Who locations. I won't say where, but there are a few locations that are mentioned in the biography of John Nathan Turner and some of his old hordes that I must admit I did come across while I was in London. So oh, really? It was, it was very interesting to have been at those locations and then suddenly be on a plane reading all about how John Nathan Turner used to go there. So that was quite amusing as well. But, yeah, really good value as a second edition. Um, I can't speak highly enough of this book. It's probably up there with... Matthew Waterhouse's Blue Box Boy is my one of my two favourite pieces about Doctor Who in terms of literature. The BBC bar's closed down now, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the TV centre has been knocked down. I, I must admit, this is going off on a sidetrack, but when I went to the UK probably five or six years ago now, I did get one of the last tours of TV centre before they closed it down completely. So I'm very grateful that I took that chance while I was there. I would have missed it out. So I have walked around the hallowed halls of TV Centre. Oh, wow. Look, to Doctor Who fans of a certain age, that is like the holy grail. (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely was. To see some of the studios where this stuff was filmed and even, do you know that little ad sort of prequel thing that they did with Tom Baker before the Loch Ness, before Terror of the Zygons went out, Mm -hmm. where Tom comes into the BBC reception, he's got the message from the Brigadier and everything? Yeah, yeah. I've seen where that was filmed. Oh, and it says something about, you know, the intensity of a Doctor Who fan that you can look at a set of front gates and a desk and go, that's where Tom Baker did that thing that before the Terror of the Zygons. <laughs> and they haven't renovated since. No, they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd quite like to read this uh, updated version myself. I have the original here, and, and mine is actually a hardback. It was done as a very limited run of hardbacks um, of only 100 but uh, this new material does sound quite good because there was quite a controversy about it. I mean, people can go and Google all of this stuff, but you had a big picture of Colin Baker, as I recall, on the cover of the paper, which then sort of linked him to it when he had nothing to do with it whatsoever. And right. it, it was just a horrible time. You know, I, I can't imagine how Richard Marsden felt during it. I'm, I'm sure he writes about it in the book. He does, and a lot of these are actually direct extracts from his diary, so it's very raw and very contemporary and very honest, which... I guess he's like the entire book. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a fantastic book. I've only read it the once, and that, that was enough for me at the time because it, it does end on such a... Gosh, JNT's life does go south pretty quickly, and it, it's so sad at the end. Yeah, it really is. I, I remember the first time I read it um, oh, over three years ago now, and, yeah, I got 
well, it's funny. It was one of those things that I remember I was on holiday in uh, Alice Springs at the time, and I was reading this book. And on the one hand, I couldn't put it down. I really couldn't put it down. But on the other, it was just so heart-wrenching mm. that, that it was really tough to read. But, yeah, it's a very powerful book. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it, it does cover a period of the show where you and I were, were watching it as, as youngsters um, with it going out at the time. So it's it's kind of an era that resonates with us. Um, uh, Richard has also written a, a Verity Lambert biography, which is very good as well. But it doesn't quite connect with me in the same way because I wasn't a Doctor Who fan in the 60s and I wasn't watching her soap operas in the 80s and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I can read it and appreciate it, but it doesn't quite have the same pull as the J&T book does for me because of just the age I am, I guess. Yeah, I would agree with that, absolutely. All right. Look, to, to finish up, um, what Doctor Who, or non-Doctor Who, I should say, are we into at present? I've, I've got a particular netflix show in mind i thought it might be fun to sort of talk about things we're doing outside of doctor who do you have some uh, examples you could maybe share with the listeners yeah for sure uh, look i'm i'm in a funny phase at the moment with television where some of my sort of regular guilty pleasure series are starting to move out and others are coming in for a long time i've been a fan of teen wolf which look that is absolutely just guilty pleasure tv but it's only got another half a season to go and then that'll be over mm-hmm. I've been a long-time fan, fan of Suits, but the last half season I thought was very, very ordinary, and they're now six or seven episodes into the next half of the season, and it's not much better, and I'm starting to think that maybe it's time that that's going to get retired as well. But in the last little while, I've discovered The Goldbergs, a sitcom, mm-hmm. which is set in the 80s, and it's just a lot of fun. It's about a family in the 80s. It's all written from the point of view of um adam goldberg who is now a television executive and actually makes the show but it's got references to all sorts of things so there's an episode that's all about the tennis um obsession that went through the u.s in the 80s there's another one that's all about you know when a different movie would come out there's an episode coming up directed by kevin smith in fact that's all about the batman phenomenon of 1989 oh i can remember that (laughs) Yeah, so I've, look, it's just a really fun little sitcom that I've been getting into. Another new series I've been getting into is Riverdale. Yes. Now, this is something I haven't actually watched yet, but it's been recommended to me by many, many people. And I know it's only dropping one a week on Netflix. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they're airing it as though it was a normal series. And I think it might actually be getting a network airing in the US as well. I'm not sure about that. But look, this again, it's it's guilty pleasure TV. It's It's your standard trope of... Um, lots of impossibly good-looking high school kids played by people who are clearly older than 16 and clearly, you know, more mature than 16, but doing really, you know, indulgent stuff. And But the way this has sort of been filmed is really interesting, the colour palettes that they use and the way they direct it and some of the stories they tell. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really getting quite into this series, so that's been quite good. Um, so, yeah, maybe Riverdale's one to check out. Uh, the Man in the High Castle I've been looking at as well, and I keep dipping into some of the um, DC TV stuff like The Flash, um, uh, Guardians of Tomorrow, whatever that one is. I haven't got into uh, Supergirl yet. I may check that one out sometime. So all these little things I'm dipping in and out of in between Doctor Who. But what have you got, Rob? Because this was your idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, just before I get into what I've got, I was just going to say stuff like The Man in the High Castle and, and even, you know, The Grand Tour and things that are on Amazon Prime. 
I would love to be watching, but it's so damn hard to get it, like, working on my TV. I wish there was just an app. Like, my TV's got apps for Netflix and apps for this and that, mm. but it doesn't have an Amazon Prime app. So I, I, I'm sort of struggling to sort of get that streaming right. So um, come on, Amazon, lift your game. Yeah, uh, no, I must, I must have been up and watching the Grand Tour as well, and that I actually wish I could watch on the TV as well because given the budget they've gone through, it's a shame to be watching it on a 15-inch screen yeah well look i think when amazon launches properly in australia i think in about september of this year they might start to do more stuff along the lines of um their tv offerings and such you know bringing it in line with what they offer in the uk and us and and such obviously folks we we buy from us and uk amazon already but we're going to get our own warehouses and distribution and stuff down here uh, in september but yes what have i been watching i've been watching well, I've watched, I've finished it, Santa Clarita Diet. I have no idea what that is. Please tell me. <laughs> I know when I say it to people, they think I've started watching some fitness show or something, but it's it's nothing of the sort. <laughs> no, I, I my, my mind when I heard that title actually went to um, SBS in the 90s after midnight, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anyone by what I say here because everything I'm about to tell you happens within the first half of the first episode. And as it, and is the whole premise for the series. So no spoilers here. Drew Barrymore is a real estate agent. And she's out with her husband, who is also a real estate agent, and they're showing a house. When suddenly she's sick, like exorcist sick, all over the floor. Um, and I know some people get grossed out by vomiting. This is vomit so copious, it's funny. Right. <laughs> and as she gets to the end of her vom, a little red gristly thing pops out of her mouth and she's like oh that was curious drew is now a zombie she's dead she has no heartbeat her blood is not flowing and the family has to figure out a how this happened b what they can do about it c how to cope with the fact she now has a lust for human flesh and hilarity ensues um, that's all I can really say, <laughs> except Nathan Fillion is in the first episode in a cameo, and he is hilarious. Okay, is it is it an out-and-out comedy, or is it more of a black humour drama sort of thing? <sighs> okay, it leans more towards black humour and drama. I, I get I get what you're asking, but it is quite funny. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just, you, you think of the situations they're in, and you think, yeah, if this was real, how would I deal with that? What would I do? Um, and it's kind of trying to deal with this bizarre issue in in a real life kind of way. Uh, it's really really fun. Okay, I'm I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'm <laughs> I'm intrigued. I've got to say. Look, the first minute or two, Drew Barrymore's in bed with the husband. They're having pillow talk, and I thought, oh, what is this? Where's this going? This is weird. But when she did the Exorcist sick, and it was just hilarious in in just its copiousness, if that's a word. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'm going to like this show. And they've got a teenage daughter, and she's trying to deal with the uh, issue as well. They've got weird neighbours. It's um, it's a zombie living in suburbia in the US. It's it's funny. Okay, anything else you wanted to mention, or was that the big one? Um, I was going to actually mention that people had recommended Riverdale to me, but I haven't watched it yet. I've, I've been really intrigued by, by Riverdale. and Yeah, I don't know if it's everybody's cup of tea, but I reckon it's worth checking out. Yeah, look, I've had it mentioned to me by by several guys, some of them in their 40s, um, one of them saying, look, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure kind of thing. And I thought, okay, well, I think I could be into that, you know. I, 
I think I sort of understand what it will be like, so yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to watching it, actually. Good oh. Well, what are you folks out there watching on TV, aside from Doctor Who? Why don't you let us know about that or anything else we discussed in the show? Maybe your thoughts on John Hurt or the big finish sale. Have you been buying up big? Have you bought a copy of Hating to Love? Uh, do you listen to Diddly Dumb or the Blue Box Podcast? You can tell us all these things at hello at the dwshow.net. And Dave, I think that's uh, that's it for another month of the flagship show, at least. Yeah, absolutely. So listeners, do write in and give us your favourite Doctor Who music stuff for next issue, because I think that'll be a good conversation. We want to hear from you. Absolutely. I'll make sure I throw out a, a bit on social media too, just to remind you all that we're really interested in hearing your opinions. And the next time we speak, we'll only be a fortnight away from the next series of Doctor Who. God, it's been a long time, hasn't it? It has. It's kind of scary now that it's so close. <laughs> but it's all... Is it just me? Has it creeped up on us now? Like, I, I don't feel that the pre-publicity seems to have been as active. Maybe in the next couple of weeks it'll start to gear up, but I, I sort of remember there being more teasers, trailers, and little little snippets and stuff about this point, or am I misremembering? No, I don't think you're misremembering. And, and in fact, if people are listening to this in a week or two's time, it could be saturation out there, and they're saying, Rob, Dave, what are you talking <laughs> about? There's heaps of stuff. But seriously, at the time we're recording this, it's it's fairly quiet on the Western Front. Well, the fact that we've only got two or three dot points of news about what's coming up in the next series, I think is is, is indicative. So maybe, maybe just for once, Cardiff isn't leaking. Yes. I mean, we could have scraped the barrel and said the Rona Munro story is called The Eaters of Light. I think that's popped out. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. There's not that much information out there, really. Yeah. So I th that's probably a good thing as well, because I, I, I'm... I'm looking forward to this season because Stephen Moffat on his farewell tour, unencumbered by anything else, he's moved on Riversong, he's moved on Clara. I think that this could be Stephen Moffat unplugged. Yes, I think it's got huge potential too, and, and I do hope it lives up to that. I mean, I know I've said before, I wish Moffat had moved on because I have this general idea that maybe showrunners only have maybe three, maybe four good years in them before they start to recycle ideas and before I'd, I'd like to see fresh blood in there. You know, it's not something personal against him. However, he's still there. He's made this. I, I hope it's great. Yeah, at the end of the day, this is the guy that wrote Blink and The Empty Child and Heaven Sent and Listen. You know, if he can give us a season that's of that quality, wow, we're in for a good season. And it's going to be a surprise, whatever happens. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to doing the 12 weeks uh, uh, with you, uh, reviewing it each week. That'll be very interesting to get our reactions literally straight after we've seen each episode. I, I feel like I should be training for that marathon. Well, you know, the class marathon took it out of us, and that was only eight weeks. I, so. I know. That's what scares me. <laughs> All right, Dave. Until next time, take care of yourself. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. See you next time. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. 
This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. G'day, I'm Rob, and you're... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I got distracted by a cat. Okay.